there's a lot of ways to succeed and, and you don't always know what's going to make you happiest. What's the most fulfilling if you can't get past your ego and, and your own idea of, you know, what you're supposed to be. This week's guest is Jason Hall, the Oscar-nominated screenwriter behind perhaps this year's most controversial box office hit, American Sniper. Welcome to episode 130 of the Rich Roll Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, everybody. I'm Rich Roll, ultra-endurance athlete, best-selling author, wellness evangelist, husband, father of four, dog owner, plant eater. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for spreading the word to your friends, to your family members on social media. Thank you for clicking through the Amazon banner ad on the main podcast page on the brand spanking new richroll.com for all your Amazon purchases. I got a feeling this week's guest might bring a few new listeners to the show. So Welcome if you're brand new. Real quick, let's break it down. What do we do here? Well, each week I sit down with somebody I find to be personally inspiring. And over the last 130 episodes since I started this little podcast adventure, in my opinion, uh, these people collectively constitute some of the brightest, most forward-thinking, paradigm-busting minds in health, wellness, fitness, sports, nutrition, entrepreneurship, and like today's guest, even the arts. And what these people have in common is that they all look at the world differently. They're all challenging the status quo. They're all breaking paradigms. They're all trying to make the world a better place. Conversations designed to help you discover, uncover, unlock, and unleash your best, most authentic self. All right, you guys, just a little business first. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel. But what you wear isn't just clothes. It is, without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built-to-move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep 
inevitably is going to be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made. And that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fairtrade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic Fairtrade cotton. Birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on Birch for about five years, and I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive, and the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. We're brought to you today by Seed. Gut health is all the rage. There's good reason for that. I've probably devoted, I don't know, at least a dozen episodes of this podcast to the many, many crucial ways the microbiome contributes to your overall well-being or lack thereof, and to the many diet and lifestyle protocols we should all adopt to promote gut health, from fermented food to fiber and everything in between, including, of course, the importance of supplementing with a probiotic. And the one that I have come to trust far beyond the shenanigans of the supplement world is Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. It's the most solid, science-based, and rigorously evidence-backed probiotic and prebiotic on the market. Formulated for optimal digestion, gut immune function, gut barrier integrity, skin health. In fact, my 16-year-old daughter has been using it to clear up a significant acne issue, and it's been wonderful, as well as many other systemic benefits. Like I said, I've been taking it daily, personally, for years. I love it. My body loves it. And right now, for our listener community, Seed is offering 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Visit seed.com slash richroll and use the code richroll25 to redeem this offer. That's seed.com slash richroll or code richroll25. So let's talk about this week's guest, Jason Hall. So Jason is a guy that I've known for uh, probably 15 years at this point. And I got to say, it's very, very cool to see him having this white hot moment in his career. It's a well-deserved moment for him. He is hardly an overnight success story. This is a moment a long time in the making. And yet what is so poignant and so apropos to this podcast is that this is a moment that is about so much more than him as a writer and about so much more than a simple movie or piece of entertainment. Jason's now got all kinds of cool movies in the can or in development, but there is no doubt that American Sniper was his first huge break. And it's a bit of a bittersweet break, given that in certain respects, this is a house that's been built upon the tragic demise of the film's main character, Chris Kyle, a guy who's not only the movie's protagonist, but a guy that Jason ultimately considered to be a friend. So we get into this and we get into so much more and what turned out to be a really compelling talk, a talk about the creative process, a rare glimpse into the machinations of Hollywood, including this great story that Jason tells about the day he got the phone call that Steven Spielberg had signed on to direct the movie and how that changed his life. This is a talk about 
the unique and unconventional way that this particular movie came together, which was very different from the typical manner in which projects like these typically piece themselves into reality. This is a talk about the controversy and the divisiveness swirling around this movie, Jason's personal perception of this debate, and the dialogue that has ensued around it. This is a talk about the true import of a movie like this, the opportunities it presents, because whether you love this movie or you hate this movie, you simply cannot deny the importance of the cultural dialogue it has catalyzed around issues we desperately need to talk about and solve. Issues like the incidence and treatment of PTSD and TBI, traumatic brain injury in today's soldiers. Issues like the physical, mental, and emotional impact of this multiple deployment lifestyle that is emblematic of today's typical modern soldier, and how we can begin to improve veterans' affairs. This is the dialogue that interests me, and this is the dialogue that interests Jason, a guy with his feet placed firmly on the ground, who really gets that the success of this movie is not about him. It's about service. It's about the responsibility we collectively shoulder as a society, irrespective of politics, to do a better job when it comes to taking care of our servicemen. Let's talk to Jason. It's uh, February 3rd, and yesterday being February 2nd was kind of an interesting day. Uh, on the one hand, it, it was the two-year anniversary of, of Chris's murder, and simultaneously, you're having this crazy moment in your life where you're going to the Oscar lunch, and you had the DGA screening last night. So there's this juxtaposition, right? This like dichotomy of you on the precipice of, you know, basically achieving your dreams, right? And that being on the shoulders of this tragic event and the demise of somebody who was your friend. Yeah, well said. Yeah, I mean, expound on that a little if you could. Um, yeah, it was a heavy day, you know, because you're, you understand that in a, in a very real way. And then, you know, going through all these experiences with Chris and, and then, you know, writing the script alongside him and then having him murdered the next day and, you know, becoming close with his wife. You, the success of this film is very different for me than it, than, and, and all of us than it mm -hmm. is for any other film, I think. I mean, not any other film, but, but certainly any other experience I've had where, uh, the victories feel bittersweet. Yeah, it's got to be. It's got to feel like weird in your stomach, like you feel guilty about celebrating. Yeah, you feel guilty, but you know the beautiful part about it is uh, his story. Now, his story couldn't have gotten any bigger, and mm -hmm. then it did. And and this guy who so much of what he did when he came back was was trying to help these guys, and now even in his death, he's found a way to help them, mm -hmm. which is you know pretty profound. Um, and his wife, I try and include her in all of it and, you know, sending her pictures yesterday and she's, she's very resilient she's got a, a really good sense of humor and she, you know, she responds and she's like, Oh my God, it looks like a kindergarten photo with, what are all these people looking at? <laughs> they're all thinking about themselves. Everyone's That's thinking about doing. themselves in the picture and looking the wrong way. And, you know, the, the animation guy's got his eyes closed and right. <laughs> 
The sound guy's got a goofy look. I mean, is it like, is there something like this every day now leading up until it's coming up, right? The 22nd? Is that the Oscars? So uh, I think so. It's yeah. got to be a pretty crazy like press schedule for you. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's screenings, a lot of screenings and talking about the movie mm-hmm. and doing that whole thing. But uh, it's, uh, it has been, it has been hectic, but it's also, it's nice to be talking about something you believe in where you're not just talking to talk. Mm-hmm. Like it, there feels like there's a point to it. Mm-hmm. You're talking in service of, of these guys and not just Chris, but all these veterans. Well, I think that's a great way to be right-sized about it, you know, to just be, in, you're, in, you're being in service to right. the veterans, to this community of people who finally found, like, sort of, you know, a voice and, and a way to kind of connect through Chris's story. Yeah, yeah, and, and for everybody to, to kind of understand what these guys go through. You know, the, our, our military is a volunteer military, so the people that volunteer at this point are are a very small population and uh you know people that we know that have somebody directly related to them in the military is is becoming fewer and fewer mm-hmm. and uh and people that our politicians know that have someone related to them you know their sons and daughters are not in the military mm-hmm. for the most part i think there are a few maybe a few senators and and one or two congressmen um or, or the other way around, who, who actually have close relatives that are in the military. So the choices they make aren't personal choices. Right. And they're, they're less and less influenced by their constituency as that sort of gets diluted, right? Yeah, their constituency in, in greater metropolitan areas is, is less and less affiliated with the military. Mm-hmm. And I think your, your perspective going into this, I mean, it, it, it's kind of a heavy burden to shoulder knowing that you're going to carry the mantle of this guy's story and, 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 what, and everything that comes with that because everybody who is sort of a veteran or part of that community is going to be kind of projecting you know, their experience onto that or how they, you know, how they relate to that. So when you are in the process of writing the movie and creating the film, I mean, how did you kind of weather that expectation or that pressure? Um, it did feel like a huge burden. It felt like a massive burden. You know, uh, I went down to the funeral and, and reconnected with Taya, his widow. And, and she said something when we were down there, she said, I can't believe this happened. He had just stopped fighting and he'd been home for three years. So I didn't Mm -hmm. understand quite what she meant. I, I had, I had a clue as to what she was talking about, but I left her my phone number. I said, when, when you're willing to talk about it, give me a call. And she called a few days later. I think it was like five days later. And she said, um, if you're going to do this, you have to do it right. Because this is how my kids are going to remember their father. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like this, just a boulder, right. you know, dropped on your shoulders. And you're like, oh, my God, what do I even say? And, uh, and I kind of came out the other end of that as I started talking to her more and more. And I realized I knew what to say. I knew how, you know, I knew the process of, of someone who's going through grief. I knew what the stages were. I'd been to like a, a grief seminar, coincidentally, like six years prior. So I knew how you approach someone with grief. And it's not like, oh, I'm so mm-hmm. sorry. It's like, I have no idea how you feel. Tell me how you feel. Mm-hmm. And then it opened up the door and she just walked through it. And what felt like this burden became slowly became a privilege. Right. It sounds like, I mean, from kind of just some of the reading that I did that, 
that, you know, obviously initially kind of sort of penetrating Chris while he was alive and trying to get inside that guy's mind yeah. is no small task, right? That guy's right. shut down. You know, that's, that's pretty much not going to happen uh, no matter how much time you hang around with them unless you're going to suddenly become a SEAL and, and get deployed with him, right? Right. And, and the irony being that you weren't able to really connect with him until he'd passed and you were able to kind of relate that experience with, with Taya. And it's an interesting personal experience that you had, right? Like you were... Uh, you were sort of vacationing with your with your brother, and you were got you guys were in like Lake Arrowhead, and there was a house fire. Uh, like yeah. What happened? Um, I mean, that's what kind of precipitated your experience with grief. Yeah, that that definitely did. I'll go back though and say like the feeling. Certainly, when I met Chris, it was like Stonewall. You couldn't. Mm-hmm. It, it was just a, a wall of you know. It felt like a, a lot of darkness and a lot of torment and a that the humanity had some way been stripped from this man. And, uh, but over the course of, of the next two and a half years, you kind of felt a lightning and, and you felt him softening in this way. And the laughter started coming easier and he was, he was, his voice changed and everything about him started to, to slowly change. And much of that was over the phone. Mm -hmm. So it was hard to articulate, but, but you could feel it happening. And yeah, you know, when you ask someone, you know, what makes you hurt? It's like, <laughs> what? You know, yeah. it's a hard question yeah. for, for, for me anybody, to answer. Right. Yeah, if you yeah, ask yeah. me, I'd be like, really, dude? Come uh-huh. on. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, when we, were, uh, when we were kids, we were in a, I'm from Lake Arrowhead and up in the mountains, and, and we went back to visit, I think it was, uh, it was Thanksgiving, and we were out drinking with some friends mm-hmm. and ended up in a house and... Um, and it was me and my brother and two of my friends from college and uh, ran into like our old girlfriends from sixth grade and seventh grade and you know, like that period of time. And a bunch of us went to this house and we started drinking and we're just having a good time playing the guitar or whatever. And uh, we kind of separated. People left and we separated. I was with a girl in a room downstairs and the house was really cold and there was snow on the ground outside. And then suddenly it was like really hot. And we tried to turn on the air condition, uh, the heater. Mm-hmm. And it didn't seem to be working. And I look out the window, and there's just flames leaping across the window. And uh, ran to the door, opened the door, just a wall of smoke. And you're, you know, instantly, you're dizzy, you're reeling. Managed to throw a chair out the window and toss this girl mm-hmm. out. How many people were in the house? Uh, I believe there were eight, eight, seven or eight at that time. And uh, got outside in the whole house is engulfed in flames. And... Um, I ran around the side and, and uh, threw a rock through a window, and my two friends were passed out in a bedroom. And uh, I got them out of that, that room. And by this time, the, the house was so engulfed in mm-hmm. flames that it was, I was 35 feet away from the door, and, and it was like hot on your face, like you're wow. next to a campfire. And I could see the door, but it was just a shadow. And it was, I realized I didn't see my brother. And uh, I'm screaming for my brother, and I start running for the for the shadow of the door, and, and uh, someone grabbed me. And he came running around the side of the house, screaming this girl's name, Desiree. And uh, he had been upstairs with her. They were making out or whatever, and he went to wash his hands, smelled the smoke. He's the guy that touches the door handle. Mm-hmm. He's like, oh, shit, it's hot. You know, they get to the stairwell, but it's an enclosed staircase, and the flames are leaping up the mm-hmm. stairs. And, uh, you know, they're getting choked by the same smoke. They crawl to a window, and he tells this girl to jump. And she's, she just goes crazy and starts grabbing him and pulling at him. And, um, 
And uh, he's like, you know, reeling. And he's like, I'm going to jump. I'll catch you. You got to jump after me. And he jumps. And she never jumped. Right. And um, and so, yeah, I, you know, we, we went to the funeral. And my guys that I pulled out go back to school and they call me a hero. And at the funeral, somebody blames him for letting this girl die and, mm. and spits at him. Mm. And, um, you know, we just, it was, uh, it was emotional trauma. You know, you kind of felt like I lost my brother a little bit. In that right. Fire. Change your relationship with your brother. Yeah. And then, um, and then also like sort of in the wake of that thinking, all right, well, life moves on and not really recognizing that you had a little, you know, post-traumatic stress, you know, stress, right. like there's a right. residue from something like that happening. Yeah, for sure. For, for, I think for everyone involved, and and the way that death, you know, a death to someone who, especially someone who's young like that, just splinters through families and communities, you know, as it does in war, it it does in in a community like that. It's, you know, she was Latin and she had a she had tons of family and cousins and and, you know, this is before social media, right? So it wasn't like there wasn't a net to kind of catch all the details and and everyone kind of went back to their lives in this sort of disassociated way mm-hmm. um you know and we didn't talk to a ton of people after that right and and uh, you know but it was suggested to you at some point like hey maybe you should go talk to somebody and well no this girl i would run into this girl and uh her dad ran a grief recovery workshop and she was she would always say to me hey you should go to my dad's grief recovery workshop i was like why uh-huh. what do i look like i have grief like she didn't <laughs> she didn't know my story at uh-huh. all and uh like six or seven times she said this over the course of like five or six years. And finally I had gone to New York to propose to a girl and I got there and she's pregnant and engaged, which is a whole, that's a whole other, you can have a whole other podcast about that. (laughs) (laughs) Adventures in idiocy. Um, I actually really want to hear about that. um, I'll take a pass for now. I mean, it's a, it's an amazing story. (laughs) It was only two months. I let her go yeah. for two months, and, and that, was, uh, that was enough time. She was in a hurry. Yeah, <laughs> she was in a rush. <laughs> um, so I came back, and I thought I was heartbroken. You know, I was like, oh, this girl. Mm. And um, I ran into that, the girl again. She's like, you should go to my dad's grief recovery workshop. And I was like, all right, I'll go. You know, I just had a breakup, if that's what that's called. Right. I don't know what that's called. But, and, uh, and so I went to the class thinking that's why I was going was about this breakup. And, and, uh, there was like 14 people in the class and they're from all around the country. Two of them were from China, you know, North Carolina, Boston, mm-hmm. San Francisco. Um, and you write down the, the things in your life that cause you grief. And, and, you know, I'm like, girl, 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 girl. Oh, that fire. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like at the bottom of the list though. Yeah. It wasn't what I thought, you know, for me it was, it was traumatic and I, and I really cared for this girl, Desiree, who was this, you know, beautiful, just kind of angelic girl that we had grown up with. And, uh, but, but I also didn't come out of it in the same way that my, my brother did where he carried that thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it didn't define me in the, in the way that it did him, uh, and so you get paired up with someone else in the class, and you're going to read just that person, your list of, of things, and that person's supposed to sit quietly. And there was a really cute girl in the class from North Carolina, and I was like, this is why I'm here. You're gonna- this is the solution to my grief. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's uh-huh. this girl, and, and we're going to live happily ever after. And, like, you know, I was 
cuckoo. Um, <laughs> and I didn't get paired up with that girl. I got paired up with the like quiet little shy girl. Mm-hmm. And so I read this girl my stuff and and uh, go down the list and. After we're done, she's supposed to be quiet. She's supposed to stand up, give me a hug. So she stands up, she gives me a hug. We both sit down, and uh, she looks at me, and she goes, was that girl from the fire? Was her name Desiree? And I was like, whoa, just goosebumps. That's a trip, yeah. And, uh, and I said, yeah. She's like, I grew up in Crestline, where you're from, and Desiree's little sister was my best friend, and mm. I stayed with them for a while after the fire. And you need to tell your brother that Desiree's parents never blamed him. She was she was afraid of heights, you know, which was something we didn't know. So I mm-hmm. got to walk back and tell my brother that, and uh, and it you know it changed our relationship. Right, it helped you reconnect with your brother. Of, yeah, I mean, it wasn't that we were disconnected totally, but it was we certainly didn't talk about it. Right. What does uh, he What's he do now? Uh, he's down in San Diego. Mm-hmm. He's a developer. Mm-hmm. But so so basically, you walk out of that experience, so it gives you kind of a vocabulary. Or you got this like, beautiful miracle, and then like, oh yeah, you just you just spent an entire weekend learning about grief, the stages mm-hmm. of grief, how to approach someone and talk to somebody with grief, and and how to deal with it and walk through it. Right. So I end up on the phone, you know, seven, eight, I don't know, I think it was eight years, seven years later, with this woman whose husband's just been murdered seven days before. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what do you say to that woman? And I'm watching the phone ring in my hand. And I'm like, I don't want to answer the phone. Mm-hmm. I, want to, I, don't, I don't know what to say to someone whose you know, husband's just been murdered. And then I realize, oh, wait, I do know what to say. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, it, and it allowed me to open up the gates in a way that allowed her to talk. And her, this quote-unquote research was, was actually allowing her to feel purposeful in exploring her grief. Interesting. Yeah. And you had just, I think you had just been down visiting like just prior to that happening. Right. I, I remember running into you. I went I to, you the, had just gotten back and it had just happened for, for the funeral. Yeah. I went yeah, to the yeah, funeral. Yeah. yeah. Which was, yeah. In itself an experience to go down there and, you know, walk into this community of guys who are, not always mm-hmm. happy to have an outsider. In their right. Presence. And that's a whole, that's a whole other thing. Yeah. I want to get yeah. into that. Cause I, I mean, I look at you and I go, <clears throat> if there was ever a screenwriter in Hollywood that, that would be able to kind of walk into like a, you know, a pool party full of Navy, you know, of seals and, right. and be able to connect it's, it's you. I mean, you you got the physique, you know, maybe like put a camouflage, you know, baseball <laughs> hat on and like grow your beard out a little bit and you're all good. Well, I, you know? <laughs> what I learned was you don't wear a hoodie either. Uh, why, why is that? Navy SEALs don't wear hoodies. What's the, what's the deal with they that? I just think it's like, uh, that's like a pussy thing. Yeah. Know? It's not cool. <laughs> Who's that comedian who wears a hoodie on a comedy network? Oh, I don't know. God, one of them, the guy that brought me down was like, you going to wear your hoodie again? I was like, what? But you were wearing like the wrong shoes, right? Yeah, I was wearing like the wrong. What are the wrong shoes? Well, any like anything converse. Next time I find converse is the wrong shoe. (laughs) Anything kind of like hipstery, or you know, Mm -hmm. you wear something. You wear you wear mountain mountain climbing boots, or like you know, Uh kind of whatever. Nothing nothing hipstery. No like hipster boots or like. Or or wingtips or fucking you know <laughs> <laughs> no Converse no none of that Just like cowboy boots hiking boots hiking boots cowboy like boots yeah that's what I meant right 
Uh, well, let's take it back. I want to hear the origin story for the movie because usually, <clears throat> you know, the way something like this works and the way that, I, you know, that way that I just assumed it worked was, uh, you know, a guy like Chris writes a book. The book becomes a big bestseller. Before the book's even published, uh, the studios, you know, bid for it and it gets taken off the market when it's still in galley form, right? Right. And, and then the studio, whatever studio it is, will hire a writer and then hire another writer and hire another writer. Right. And then it's either in development hell or it gets made, right? right? But that's not what happened here. Like, you were way ahead of that. Yeah, in, um, in early 2010, I heard about, I heard Chris's story. And, uh, and me and two producers were organized a, a trip for myself to go down to Texas and, and to meet him. And um, that was before there was any book. You know, he had been home like nine months at that point. Mm-hmm. He'd retired from the Navy nine months earlier. And uh, he had actually dictated the book. I was later to learn it was it was kind of like he met a guy in a bar. The guy knew some of the guys he knew and, and seemed like a, you know, he was a lawyer, seemed like a cool guy. And he told the guy a few stories after a while. And the guy was like, hey, we should record this. And like, mm-hmm. let's put it down. And the guy brought a tape recorder and basically put a tape recorder on the bar in front of this soldier who was home for six months. And was like, hey, tell me that story tell again. Tell me some stories. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that's the voice you get of Chris, who's like, you know, feels like he's two beers in and he's given this like rant that's, mm-hmm. you know, unapologetic. It's kind of nasty. And, and it's like, yeah, I went to war and I did my thing and. Yeah, it was fun. I saved these guys' lives and, you know, mm. I killed these people. Yeah, and he hadn't been home long enough to really have any perspective on anything. None. None. He was at war for 10 years. And so, you know, I go and meet him a couple months later and they'd worked out. And they were shopping that to, they put it down in manuscript form or shopping it to publishers. And but you didn't even, I mean, the first time you went down and visited him, you didn't even know that. I didn't right? know there was a book. <clears> or you went anything. down just yeah. on a lark to go meet this guy. Yeah. It was before anybody knew who this guy was. All I knew was that he had killed, he had more confirmed kills than anyone in U.S. military history. And then so he, you were told, right? Like, right. you didn't even know if that was true. Well, what I did was I, I ended up calling a guy, you know, he also hit this shot from 2,100 yards. Right. So I called a guy who I, I knew it was legit, who was in SEAL 6 and um, was down at the farm, you know, working for the CIA, coaching up these, uh, these spooks. You should have called that guy to ask what kind of shoes to wear. Yeah, <laughs> he probably would have told me. He probably knew. Um, and and I, said, uh, I said, hey, this guy, I heard about this guy. His name is Chris Kyle, and he hit a shot from 2,100 yards. And, and you know anything about it? He's like, no, I know that he's full of shit. Like your guy's full of shit, and mm-hmm. I was like, "All right, well, because like there's only like yeah." He said, "There's five guys in the world right. who can hit that shot, and your guy's not one of them." Mm-hmm. I said, "All right, will we look him up?" He's like, "Yeah, but he's full of shit." I'm like, "All right," so he calls back. And he's like, "So, um, who's one of the five? You know, right?" Like and a week later, a week later, calls back. <clears throat> he's one of the five, and and you know, he's. I think he said, "This guy's dipped in gold shit or something." Right. And he was like, "You know, somebody dipped this guy in gold." Because the shit he did down there is unheard of. Mm-hmm. And he said he was always in the right time, at the right place, to take the right shot that saved a bunch of guys' lives. And it's like, you know, people started feeling like he was their good luck charm and they, you know, wanted him on their team. They wanted him on any direct action stuff they did. And, uh, and so I knew, I knew to a degree that, you know, all right, this guy's the real deal. Mm-hmm. 
and he's down there in Texas, and I'm going to go meet him. But I, I didn't know. I'd never been to Texas either, mm-hmm. which in and of itself, leave out the Navy SEAL, leave out all the cops that were there. There was 50 cops when I showed up that were there, like, drinking and, and carousing and hunting. Uh-huh. <laughs> and like he was putting on, like, a seminar or something, right? Yeah, like, he had uh, these guys up to a hunting lodge, and uh, <clears throat> it was a big, fancy hunting lodge, and and he was he was entertaining them because he was starting a training company, like a security and tactical training company. Mm-hmm. And so he wanted their business. He wanted these cops to come in and, and, you know, he'd come in, train the cops how to use their guns, retrain them on how every six months on how to, you know, firing techniques and make sure they were honed up so they didn't mess up in the field. And, uh, yeah, so I showed up at this ranch house and there's 50 cops in a Navy SEAL sniper. <laughs> and you're like the weenie Hollywood yeah. guy, right? And they right. all I got know my, it. I had my oh, hoodie on and my converse. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it did, and I don't drink, so it didn't, go, it didn't go that well. I was like, hey, you want a beer? I was like, no. And it's like, silence. Right. <laughs> the room goes yeah, silent. how are you going to socially penetrate this group of right. guys, right? Exactly. So what do you do? You know, I just sat around and listened for a long time and, and tried to tried to get him to talk. And I kept asking his friends, why wouldn't he? His friends were telling the stories. It mm-hmm. wasn't him. And it was kind of like, that was kind of the, the story of Chris, was all his friends would tell a bunch of stories. And he'd kind of like sit there and mm-hmm. roll his eyes. And, and, you know, he was kind of embarrassed by it, is the truth of how he felt. He didn't, he wasn't, you know, the, the book sounds like this braggart, but it, the reality is he was very uncomfortable with it. Mm-hmm. And so these guys would sit there and tell stories about the legend. And I was like, well, why won't he talk to me? And they're like, he's a sniper, man. He sits and waits. Mm-hmm. Like, sits well, and waits. How yeah. long does he wait and what is he waiting for? Well, you, there's that one scene in the movie where you kind of capture that, where they're at the auto body shop and the guy, the guy rolls up on him and wants to say all this stuff. And he just, yeah. you know, Bradley's just squirming, you know, so uncomfortable. With such a great, receiving such a great moment for yeah. him. I mean, he, he builds the layers of that scene and the layers of how uncomfortable he is and, and, you know, what he's thinking through the action that's going on around him. And, uh, it's such a terrific scene for Bradley. Mm-hmm. I mean, was that the intention with that scene to kind of capture that aspect of his character that yeah, you discovered absolutely. so early on? Absolutely. Uh-huh. I, I found him to be, um, you know, people are like, well, he wrote a book about killing people, what he did. And the reality was he, someone else was going to write the book. You know, mm-hmm. someone was starting to write the book about him without him and wasn't going to be able to give his guys credit. And he felt like, all right, I can write the book on myself, give my guys some credit and, and you know, where credit is due. And uh, and so he did. And, and you know, but but that that didn't happen at that point, obviously. So I'm sitting there with the, the cops and the and the seal and and the golf guy, uh, Faraday. Mm hmm. You know, the guy that sits by the green is like, he's right. lining up his short there. You know, <laughs> the whole thing. And so he's sitting there, like, kind of narrating, oh, the Hollywood writers here is right. going to get his pen's ass kicked. Uh-huh. You know, and like this, this SWAT guy. And you're kept, there totally on your own, right? Totally on my own. Yeah. You have no wingman. Or no anything. wingman. No. <laughs> no, and it's Texas Rangers. Right. Like, there's every Texas Ranger and SWAT guy and like long tables of fucking steak and beef lined up and everyone's drinking and, and firing guns off the deck. And it's like, <laughs> you know, it's that kind of environment. And I want to like, see that movie. Yeah, something's going to happen, <laughs> yeah. you know? Uh-huh. It felt like they were deciding who they were going to hunt that night. <laughs> it was like, right. you know. 
I, I thought they were going to like paint me red and send me out into the field. Mm-hmm. <laughs> run, run. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so you're going to have to like you're going to have to do something here, right? Yeah, so I ended up uh this guy was giving me a hard time. He kept calling me a Hollywood pussy and and uh really egging me on and egging me on and he was kind of the joker of the group and he was kind of joking but he got he crossed the line like he definitely crossed the line and chris wasn't talking to me i didn't know what to do so i just threw him in a headlock mm-hmm. and threw the guy down and a like sw- uh swat guy or the a seal team guy no the swat guy, the SWAT guy. Uh-huh. yeah yeah threw him down and choked him out a little bit <laughs> and chris liked that a lot yeah <clears throat> that was chris's party trick was choking people out mm-hmm. but you, did you know that or I I had heard them say it. They had threatened. They said, well, if Chris likes you, if you'll know because he'll choke you out. Mm-hmm. And and right. so I knew that he didn't like me because he hadn't <laughs> he choked me out. So I choked uh-huh. out one of his friends and tried to. And then he was like, hey, this guy's all right. I'll talk to you. What do you want to know? Mm-hmm. But it was still like, you know, there was a there was a, just a tremendous amount of like he'd smile over it and it was all fine. But like in the in the moments between you could feel it. You could feel on him that he'd done something that was just had had come home with him. There's just heaviness. It's just a heaviness that followed him home, and and you know he just didn't feel like he was home at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, when did you? When was the moment where you thought, oh, there's there's a movie here? Like um, there's the idea of the character, but then right. that's different from the movie. No, and I sat there with Chris and talked about different movie ideas, and none of them were about him. Like he had a ton of movie ideas, but none of them were about him. He was like, mm-hmm. yeah, you write a better movie. Like, write these guys go down to Mexico and take on the cartel or something. You know, mm-hmm. he had action movie ideas, but he didn't see a movie about himself, mm-hmm. which was kind of telling. Um, but the, you know, I had called That's my interesting, wife. too, just on that idea of like kind of dichotomies, because it's very easy to look at the whole thing and go, well, this guy's opportunist. You know, he's writing this book when, you know, the SEAL guys aren't supposed to do that kind of thing. He's going on the talk radio show. You know, he's going on all on TV talking about all this stuff and telling these crazy stories. Cause now of course there's all this controversy over these other things that he either did or didn't do. And, and how do you reconcile that with like this kind of quiet guy in the corner? Yeah. I mean, look, these guys come home and there's a lot of damage. There's a lot of damage. Mm -hmm. And, and so, you know, my experience with him was that he was very shy and humble. And, uh, you know, I know why he wrote the book and, and, you know, he carried this legend thing around on his shoulders. Like it was, it was a heavy crown. Mm. And I think that that, that really weighed on him and it, and it affected him. And, and, you know, he's someone who came home with stress and he came home with some TBI and, and, um, you know, he was shot several times who was blown up twice and, um, and, and by roadside bombs, IDs, and um, you know that takes an effect on a on a man, mm-hmm. and and add that to the amount of life he he was tasked with taking. It's it's heavy, um, and so you could see that. So the next morning, his wife and kids walked in, and I watched him like struggle down to his knees, and he had had a knee replaced, and he was just he looked like he was like seventy five years old trying mm-hmm. to get to his knees and spread his arms for his kids and I saw his face light up and it was a different, different guy than I'd seen in the last 24 hours. And, uh, and I also realized I had figured out how long he'd been away at war and, and all the training and added it up. And his kids were four and six and I looked at his wife and I was like, holy shit, she raised these kids by herself. Mm-hmm. Like this was her war in every way that it was his. And every mm-hmm. time he deployed, she was deployed in, in the same way. And 
I heard stories from her about how, you know, they conducted their marriage over a cell phone, over a sap phone for the last, right. you know, however long. And, uh, and it was, it, it struck me that, you know, here's a story. This is the story, this family at war, not just this guy at war, but here's this family who, who went to war in every, every way possible. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's the movie for me. That's the whole movie. The whole movie is his relationship with his wife and his children, his inability and struggle and ultimately, you know, uh, success at kind of, you know, overcoming the emotional hurdles to be able to reconnect when he comes back. And just, just like what was so unique and powerful was, um, just seeing the multiple deployments. It's like, you know, you can watch, uh, <clears throat> Hal Ashby's coming home and right. you see John Voight and we talk about World War II, you know, World War One, the Great War. It's like they, the soldiers go, they have this experience, they come back and they try to reacclimate and they either do or they don't or there's some spectrum in their ability to, right. um, you know, sort of resume their normal <clears throat> life. But here we have a situation where, you know, suddenly we're perpetually at war, you know, and I don't see that changing. We're just, we're just right. in a constant state of international conflict where troops are going overseas for a certain period of time, then they're coming back, then they're going back, then they're going back. Right. At any given moment, they can call their whoever they want up on the telephone. And back at home, we're all watching it on television. And so what a colossal like brain fuck that whole thing is. Yeah. And you know, we've never had to experience anything like yeah. that. And I don't think we're really talking about like the, the kind of you know, emotional toll that that, that that kind of protracted level of service is taking right. on these soldiers. Yeah, and it's never occurred like this before. Those guys who went to World War II and those guys who went to World War I, they sailed back together on a ship. Mm-hmm. You know, and you go back to the Crusades, they paddled back together on a ship. You know, right. it, it, the Vikings, whatever we're talking about. It's like there was a reacclimation period. Right, a slow period. A of slow like, period of, yeah. of, of like yeah. just kind of melting into it. And, and not only, not only the, the reacclimation, but also having the group together. Mm-hmm. Having the group of, of soldiers who return together and sort of decompress at the same time with each other, able to talk to each other. Now... You know, early on in the war, it was guys would come home solo. Guys would be dropped on a on a commercial flight and walk mm-hmm. off into a normal airport. You know, from from you know stumbling down the stairs carrying their buddy with the, you know, was bleeding into their mouth mm-hmm. in, into you know, Omaha Airport. Right. And it's like no reacclimation. Right. No friends there. No nothing. Yeah, it's back to that juxtaposition, really. I mean, the idea that you could be like patrolling through the streets of Fallujah and right. then literally 24 hours later, you're at Costco. Yeah. You know? And, yeah. And I mean, that scene yeah. with the Mitsubishi like minivan behind them when they look like they're driving right. on the freeway in Orange County, like right. it's just, you know, that's so, that was so palpable where you're like, yeah, of course, he still thinks he's back there. Yeah. Everything. The drill, the the thing, you know, every every sound, every every sensory thing, mm-hmm. and and the interesting biological part of that is the, you know, the level of stress that they're exposed to is is creating an environment ripe for psychological trauma because of the of the release of of all the dopamine and and the adrenaline levels mm-hmm. and and cortisol. It's uh, all that stuff is is stored in a very ripe environment, and so it's it's right there, and it keeps coming back. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm not a neuroscientist, but I've been talking to plenty of them, and it's it's really interesting to hear them talk about the way this information is stored, and how it can't uh, 
they can't differentiate that because of where it's stored and, and the environment of their, of their brain. When they encounter that information, uh, they can't differentiate that information from, from fiction. That's really interesting. I mean, and that, that doesn't even get into the other aspect of it, which is, you know, once you're sort of, that's, you're used to that being your reality, then that's yeah. kind of what you want to be your reality. It feels more like your reality. Yeah. yeah. Because it's, uh, the, the other side of it is there, that environment that's ripe for trauma, that environment is also ripe for camaraderie and, and brotherhood and this, the bonds that these guys create are, are as strong or stronger than the bonds that they have at home, mm-hmm. you know, uh, familial with their wife and, and otherwise it's just, you're not going to ever encounter that level of, of, uh, trust with anybody else. Mm-hmm. You know, these guys trust each other with their lives and, and they know when they go left, he's going to go right. And they know exactly what's going to happen. Then they come home and, and it's not like that. It's right. like, well, you go left, you might go left alone. I'm going to go back inside. Right, right, right. And, and like, you can't you can't expect anybody to no, understand that. And there's no. no point in even trying to explain it. No, right? there's really not. So what are the what are the uh, you know what are the resources available to these guys? Like, are they you know I, I only have like a layperson's <clears throat> understanding of like how the VA operates right. and kind of the you know what kind of help that it, that they can access. You know, <clears throat> in the last couple of years, it's been not much. Like, that's the reality is mm-hmm. a lot of these guys go sign up, they get an appointment, they wait in these long lines all day, then they get a number, and then they got to plug in the number, and then it's like, all right, you have your appointments in, you know. We'll call you when your appointment's up, and usually it's like, I think the the average wait time was like 189 days at some of these places. Wow. And so you're talking about, then you get in there, and you're talking to a civilian who half the time is looking at their computer, mm-hmm. you know, and they're punching in information and, and your 15 minutes is up when it's up and you got to get out. And it's not that the person behind the desk is a bad person, but they're just overwhelmed. Right. You know, and and uh, and hopefully that's changing. You know, we we have a new VA secretary who seems like he, he's going to do a good job and uh, has taken, you know, unregulated un things that they were doing and <clears throat> toss them out the window. And he comes from the private sector and he's trying to approach this like, Hey, this is a business and this is customer mm-hmm. relations. These are our customers. Right. And, but you're also dealing with one of the biggest bureaucracies in the world, right? Yeah. The, the VA is enormous. Yeah. It's so, the second biggest, uh, healthcare system outside of France, mm-hmm. you know, out of France. Right. So trying to turn healthcare. that, trying to turn that thing around. Yeah, it's, it's, a, a it's no small task. And meanwhile, all these guys are, you know, having these multiple deployments and, you know, the problem gets exacerbated. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, how would you, you know, if you, if you were in charge, like, you know, what do you, what have you in your experience of kind of, you know, navigating through this world and the other project that you're working on, thank you, you know, for your service. I mean, what have you learned about what could possibly be changed? You know, it's challenging. I don't think PTSD and and post-traumatic stress is not uncurable. I don't. I don't believe that it's uncurable. Mm-hmm. I just believe that the the healthcare approach has to be. It has to be a whole body approach rather than like, hey, let's try and band aid this with medication. Mm-hmm. You know, I I think that there's hormonal solutions that they haven't explored fully and that are you know, that they that they understand, but it's kind of cutting edge stuff. I think the closer we um, align some of these these uh, traumatic brain injuries with 
with other kind of uh, with sports with with football same stuff is happening to those guys mm-hmm. in football with so, the TBI with the TBI so the closer that that they you know associate themselves with that the the easier it's going to be to jump into that modality of treatment in, in the way that they treat these guys mm-hmm. and a lot of these guys some of them do need medication but but a lot of them need a uh, hormone therapy and and there's other things that you know light therapy treatment and all this all these things that we can do to to repair some of that shearing of of the of the brain yeah i heard i heard you when you were on uh rogan's podcast and you had a veteran with you and you had that hormone therapy guy what was his what's that guy's name again uh mark gordon he was doing some sounds like he's doing some really interesting things he was having amazing results amazing results and look it's not everything's it that doesn't mean it's going to work for everybody right but but for a certain amount of these guys you know they're in fight or flight they go over there and it's like fight or flight for six months and their adrenaline just goes through the roof and they're mm-hmm. and uh you know the cortisol goes up and the DHEA drops and and then they come back and it everything drops through the floor because in that six months long term homeostasis of the body shuts down. So the body stops doing all that regulation for the things that are you know come after the the adrenaline surge. Right. You're just constantly in fight or flight the whole fight time. Fight or flight. So you're just yeah. like your your system is just stressed to the max. Yeah. And then you come back and it all just... It all kind of... Sh- it drops through the down. floor and then everything yeah. shuts down and it causes systematic uh, health problems. Mm. You know, kidneys, liver, all your all these other functions start have, have not been taken care of over that six-month period of time and they just are, you know, flailing to, to regulate themselves. Mm-hmm. So it's... It's a massive challenge, and I don't, I don't pretend to have the answers in any way, shape, or form. But you know, I, I think that it's going to require real patience, and and uh, and it's going to it's going to require real reform on the on the part of the VA, and mm-hmm. and hopefully uh, this Bob McDonald is uh, up for the job. It seems like he is. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, you know, because certainly this problem's not going away. And as no. these sort of multiple deployment, this sort of like, you know, status quo perpetuates, it's, this is a problem that's just going to get larger. Right? Yeah. I mean, hopefully it doesn't get larger. There's 3 million guys that went, I, I got this number uh, two days ago, 3 million now is what they say have gone to Iraq or Afghanistan. Mm. So, I mean, hopefully it doesn't get larger and hopefully it doesn't get, it will get larger, but hopefully it doesn't get larger in the way that it, it did over the last decade. Right, right, right. Well, let's get back to Chris. So you're yeah. trying to you know, crack this nut wide open, right? <laughs> like trying to figure out what's making this guy tick and how are you going to write a movie right. about this guy's life, right? Right. So how many times do you go down and visit him? I mean, what is the process like of trying to crack the story here? Well, I spent that entire, I spent like three more days down there after that and went hunting with him and his son. And I, you know, I kind of watched him step back into his life. It felt like, Mm -hmm. you know, and I know he had been there, but his family, he had moved out to Texas uh, and his family was still packing and moving everything out and kind of came to join him. And so I watched him sort of step back into his life and I went hunting with him and his kid and, and watched him, you know, his son get his first buck and, and, you know, his dad walk him through this process, this sort of ritualistic process of like, you know, here's what we do mm-hmm. is yeah, we're going to skin the deer and, and here's the parts we use and don't use and, um, you know, field dress this animal. And, and the son's kind of like, yuck. All right. How old is he? Like, I think he was six at the time. Oh, my God. So yeah. young. Yeah. Very young. But it's oh. about the same age that Chris started hunting for, for real and, and you know. Mm-hmm. 
so did his son. But it was I felt privileged to like watch this whole thing unfold and watch him be a dad in a way that, you know, you just don't when you think of these these soldiers and these war stories, you think of like dust and sand and grit and it's like you know, you don't think of him sitting there with his daughter and, and rubbing her feet while she watches Despicable Me. Mm-hmm. You know, which is a different mm-hmm. it's a whole different side that I hadn't seen. So it really opened everything up and you know, then I as I was walking out the door it was like, Oh, there's gonna be a book and kind of the door slams. I was like, Oh great. Right. We're never gonna get this, but the we got the galley. Because right, you're the just book. you're you're working with some independent producers, you're yeah. down there on a lark, you're not yeah. getting paid, you're just there to sniff around and see if there's some yeah. possibility of yeah. a project for you to do. And I still didn't know what honestly didn't know what the story was. I kind of pitched mm-hmm. him my ideas and I said I want to make it, uh, you know, more than just about you. Like, let's make it about these four deployments and how could we structure that and uh, how could we tell your story in an honest way? And and his big thing was like, I, I don't want it just to be about me. It can't just be about me. Um, you know, there's a lot of guys. You got to give everybody credit. And and uh, you know, that was his big concern off the top. Mm-hmm. Um, and he still was like, and I'm sure we could find something else to make this movie about. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, and even if you know, even if uh, you just you come down here, bring your family and kids again. Well, at least we'll get a you get a trip out of it, right? He was at least sure he's talking to you. Movie. Yeah, at least he's talking yeah. to me by the end of the weekend. Uh-huh. But you're thinking, oh, there's a book. Like, forget it. Uh, like, I thought I'm never going to get the rights to this book. It's the most lethal sniper in U.S. His- history. It's you know, how are we going to get the rights to this? Mm-hmm. But the book came out, and it was so unapologetic, and just it it just was like shocking and uh hollywood's like no thanks hollywood said no thanks there was one other person who wanted it for like a limited series or something um but i knew while reading the book i knew what was between every line you know the difference Mm -hmm. was i'd stood there in front of him i knew this was not some some like off the wall sociopath crazy person I'd stood there, I'd shook his hand, I looked into his eyes, I saw pain. If he was crazy, there would have been no pain. Mm -hmm. If there was crazy, there would have been no stress, there would have been no problem. Mm -hmm. I've talked to those guys. I've talked to the the guys who have gone over there and I've gone on 11 deployments and I hunted Pablo Escobar and I did this and that. And it's like, there's like a nothing, no problem. Sociopath kind of personality aspect. Yeah, it's the detachment that you you didn't experience with Chris. Right. You know, with Mm -hmm. Chris, it was, uh, there was there was hurt. There was torment. You could feel it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I knew it was between the lines of the book and, and, uh, and I felt that I could explain that and explore that if I could, if I could get him to open up more. Right. And so that was my challenge. And, you know, we optioned the book and, 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 uh, you know, we called up, I called up Bradley and, and pitched it to him and, and we went in and sold it to Warner brothers. Meditation has been a recurring theme on this podcast, dating back to its beginnings. And in conversation always leads people to asking me about the best way to begin. There are no shortage of modalities of resources and apps available. I have experience with many of them, but my mainstay, I have to say, the one that I have found most useful is waking up. It's this unique treasure trove of wisdom that has become so important to my daily routine that the app finds itself right in the dock of my phone for immediate fingertip access. Beyond its robust catalog of daily meditations, it's also this extraordinary library of mindfulness resources that go 
well beyond the strictures of meditation with courses on stoicism, cognitive behavioral therapy, time management, procrastination, as well as thoughtful conversations with leading scholars on everything from psychedelics to happiness. It really is one of the most worthy investments you can make in yourself. And listeners of the show can get 30 days to try waking up for free. Plus, you'll save $30 on the in-app price. If price is a concern, Waking Up offers the app for free, astonishingly for anyone who can't afford it. You can find the links on their website to get a full scholarship right now. Just go to wakingup.com slash richroll to start your free month today. That's wakingup.com slash richroll. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. What was it about the story that Bradley you know, connected with? Um, I just, I pitched him deer hunter, really. Mm -hmm. I kind of pitched him deer hunter and I, and, and the way that that affected those characters, the way that war affected those men. And, uh, and I also, I also pitched him the story of telling this like a Western, Mm -hmm. you know, really in the dirt and the dust and, and, you know, 
and their understanding of the war they walked into, because there was a limited understanding of, of the war they walked into. There was a limited understanding of it for the public at the time, and certainly a limited understanding of the, for the soldiers at the time. And the way that they related to that war was through those towers falling. Mm-hmm. When those towers fell, like people went and signed up for the, for the war. They didn't know where they were going to Iraq or Afghanistan, but that's how they signed. You know, that's why they signed up. And you know, when Chris Chris was already in when the towers fell, but when the towers fell, he watched it on the news. His beeper went off because they still had a beeper, mm-hmm. and uh, and it was like you have to get to base. Mm-hmm. And and so the reaction for those guys was like, towers fell, we're going to war. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, there's been some criticism of that, of like the towers fell, didn't, wasn't the same war you were fighting. Right. But his reaction was the towers fell. I got a beeper. I'm on the freeway going to war. Cop pulls mm-hmm. me over and, uh, cop pulls me over, says I'm speeding. And I'm like, I'm a Navy SEAL. I'm the towers just fell. And he's like, all right, follow me and gives him a police escort back to San Diego. Right. Wow. You know, so it's like, that was their emotional reaction was, was this, um, I forgot if I was even answering a question or yeah. Or what, no, well, we were just talking about like what what was it about about the story that that Bradley connected with? Like, what was the part that made him want to do the movie? Yeah. So so it was the you know I think it was that Western element. It was the Western element of this guy gets sent sent to this place of lawlessness and and uh, you know he he has this duel with this enemy sniper that kind of is like this mano a mano mm-hmm. thing that is as, as much psychological as it is actual. And, and uh, you know, they have this shootout in the end. And, and look, the reality of the war by the time Chris got over there, the second battle of Fallujah, by the time he was a sniper, was uh, we were fighting enemy insurgents who had, you know, radical extremists mm-hmm. who had flooded into the country to kill Americans for the promise of pay and, and everything else that came, you know, through their religion. They they were smuggled into the country. So he was fighting Jordanians and Chechens mm-hmm. and Syrians. You make and all. that point with Mustafa being like a foreign national. Yeah, Syrian. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, I mean, I think that that in terms of the criticism of the film, you know, the attacks really come from this perspective of it being this misplaced archetype of of what war is or the politics of this war. Whereas really, I feel like this is this is. Uh, an experience seen through the eyes of one character right. in his limited prism and, um, you know, the information that he chose to process, you know, yeah. this experience through. And when you kind of, you know, put those blinders on and restrict your, your kind of access to information or, or what have you, it, the whole movie kind of comes into a, a crisper focus for right. me. Right. And, you know, he went over there with a purpose and, and it wasn't, uh, he didn't choose whether he was going to go to Iraq or mm-hmm. Afghanistan he, you know, he was trained to do what he was trained to do, and he's trained to follow orders, and, and he was sent over there, and he did his job. Mm-hmm. So how do you, like when people, when you read the, I mean, do you read the reviews? Have you seen the, the criticism? Like, how do you kind of process all of that? I mean, what is your response? I mean, my first response is great. I'm, I'm glad people are having a reaction to it. I'm glad people are talking about it. I'm glad people are talking about the Iraq war. I'm glad they're talking about a, a real soldier because mm-hmm. any talk about a real soldier, any reaction to this is a positive reaction because it means we're talking about it. And it means we're talking about these guys who get buried under just a 24 hour 
you know, seven days a week news cycle of, of blah, 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 blah. And it's like, you know, we had the VA story come up last year and it was, it was this huge, huge scandal that just disappeared overnight, disappeared. We, we found somebody in Libya that had been part of the embassy bombing and, you know, the story was gone. Mm. It disappeared. And, uh, and the fact that we've been talking about this for a couple of weeks is a huge, huge victory. And, and the point was to explore the, the warrior archetype, you know, to explore this man's story and in exploring his story in a singular and, and personal way, we explore the, the archetype of, of warriors and what they go through and, and what one man goes mm-hmm. through and, and what his family's sacrifice is in that process. Mm-hmm. Are you surprised by the reaction that the movie's gotten? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's hit a, it's hit a nerve for everybody in a, in a good and a bad way. And again, I think that's, I think that's a positive. Uh, I went to this dinner the other night with, um, I was invited to this dinner where the new VA secretary was Mm -hmm. and he, he's paid this huge compliment. He said, look, you guys have done more to advance the, the, the awareness of veterans in in the last two weeks than we've been able to do in the last decade. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's like, wow, that yeah, I mean, means just, something. Just the fact that we're, you know, we're there's a there's a public discourse about PTSD, TBI, right. what we're doing with these multiple deployments, and all these soldiers can't be a bad thing. Right? Yeah, if that's the yeah. only thing that comes out of this, you know, yeah, and look, so much more. I, we walk into this. I have my own opinion of Iraq. Like, I didn't understand why we went to Iraq. Thought it was crazy. Mm-hmm. You know, the axis of evil and, and this and that. And I was like, I got it. Afghanistan, absolutely. We're going after this guy. This is the guy that did it. And then it like shifted to Iraq, and I didn't understand that. But it wasn't for these guys to understand that. They didn't choose to go to this war. They didn't, they didn't get to go investigate whether the yellow powder was, was there and they were producing right. it or not. You know, they were they were certainly sent in to they were sent in to do this job. Hey, you're on a rooftop. It's a very small right. like you get a very small tapestry when you're a soldier. It's like you're gonna be on a rooftop, you're gonna be on the southwest corner of that building, you're gonna be looking down that street through a one and a half inch piece of glass. That's what there there's your war, dude. Mm-hmm. That's your that's your area, that's your war. Anything outside of that? yellow powder or whatever the government's talking about or whatever about she it. sold him yeah. in that. It's not your issue. Your issue is like real and it's right now and you're, you're going to try and save lives or, or guys are going to die. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and that's all you have to look at is one and a half inches of glass. Mm-hmm. I feel like you, you um, kind of very deftly traverse this tightrope act with Chris being a guy who w- it would be very easy to characterize as kind of this larger than life Achilles type person, you know, right. all these kills, like, you know, his, his legendary and he's got a price on his head and all this sort of thing. But, but you make this choice to say, actually, this is, this is really kind of a tragic story. Like, let's look right. at the tragic aspects of what it means to walk a day in this guy's shoes. Yeah. And I feel like in this dialogue about the merits of the movie and, you know, as a polemic of war or not, that that actually is getting lost in the discussion a little bit. And that's really the thrust of the movie for me. Yeah. No, that was the thrust of the movie for mm-hmm. all of us. And, you know, the, the unfortunate side of the media is that people adopt it for their own reasons. 
It's like, oh, well, I'm, you know, I'm going to say this crazy thing about the, about what snipers and their cowards and because mm-hmm. nobody's paid attention to me in the last two years. Right. Well, or some kind of clickbait headline. Right. Right. Like right. the clickbait headline for this podcast would be, uh, uh, you know, how to write a $300 million movie. You know what I mean? Like, like as if, you know, tuning into this podcast is going to teach right. some aspiring screenwriter how that's right. going to happen. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. No, a lot of these, a lot of these things are so hyperbolic that it's, it's kind of hysterical. Right. And it's unfortunate in the way that, you know, everyone's screaming so loud on the left and the right and, and pulling it this way and that, that you lose the voice in the middle, which is these guys who are finally having an opportunity to talk. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I hope this is is furthering their their desire and their their willingness to speak. You know, and I've I've gotten a few letters that are that have indicated that that are just like magic. You know, these letters from from wives and from from soldiers There's, themselves. That's only starting, dude. I mean, that's that's inevitable. I mean, look, we're talking about you know, it is a three hundred million dollar movie, and it barely just came out, right? And this is Clint Eastwood's most successful movie. Like, this is one of the, is it the most financially successful war movie of all time? Like. It's insane what's happening right now with this film. And it's, right. it's really, I think it's still in its just beginning, right? I mean, it only came out a couple of weeks ago, really wide. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> you know, this is kind of an amazing experience that you're having. Yeah. I mean, how does that feel? Um, it feels good. I mean, it feels, it feels purposeful, which is the good mm-hmm. part about it. It doesn't feel like it's a bunch of hot air. It feels like there's a real purpose to this and there's a real... Uh, you know, I, I certainly have an agenda. Like, and how are you channeling that advocacy? Like, wh- what are the avenues that you can place that energy? Um, you know, it's challenging. It's I've looked into starting my own uh, foundation and, and doing that. And then I kind of found, uh, I met Maria Shriver and her mm-hmm. brother Bobby, and uh, who'd been Bobby. suing the VA. You know Bobby? Yeah. Sweetest guy, mm-hmm. like so funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, we went and had dinner at their house and he'd been suing the VA to get them to use the, uh, West LA parcel of land that they have. That's basically a parking lot with these buildings on it that just sits there to house the, you know, in LA, we have the largest, um, population of homeless veterans anywhere in the country. Mm. And so the, the point was to, Hey, I'm going to sue you guys to use this to house homeless veterans. And so uh, Bob McDonald took, took the secretaryship over, was appointed by Obama, and, uh, and he said, hey, it's crazy you're suing us because we should be doing what you're asking us to do. Right. And here's what else we're going to do. We're going to do this, this, and this, and we're going to do this you know, land assessment, and we're going to see if we can you know, add a track and a basketball court, and we're going to try and do all these things. And, and he's really trying to make it happen. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and so I think, you know, I think that that's a great cause. Like the idea that we can't really treat these guys if, they're, if they don't have a roof over their heads mm-hmm. is, it makes a tremendous amount of sense to me. Because mm-hmm. you, you treat these guys for PTSD and then send them out to live under a bridge, you got a problem. Right. You know, that's going to that's gonna cause its own symptoms and, and everything that goes with that. Um, so I, you know, I, I've... I've kind of found my way into that, and I, I'm going to march with that one and, and see what else. But that's cool. There's like, certainly a lot of, you know, Taya has her own foundation called mm-hmm. Chris Kyle Frog that's going to uh, to not just Navy SEALs, but first responders and, and all, these other, um, <clears throat> all these other good causes. So a ton of good causes out there. It's, uh, 
it's about finding the right ones and, and, you know, being multi-purposeful. Mm-hmm. Well, I like that. Um, back to the narrative of how this yeah. movie got made. <laughs> so Bradley's on board and, uh, but that's still a long way from there actually being a movie, right? Like what happens next? Um, it was a, it was a shorter way. I mean, it was, we walked in and they were like, Oh, Bradley. Yeah, sure. We'll buy whatever you want. Cause he had just done the hangover, the mm-hmm. hangover too. I'm not sure which one it was, but it was like, you know, they just gave him a deal. So they couldn't say no. I don't even think they were listening to the pitch. They were like, Iraq war movie. Right? Yeah, sure. Whatever. Right. You know, <clears throat> he didn't, he didn't want to hear the whole pitch, honestly. Right. <laughs> it was hilarious. Um, but, uh, yeah, there was a long way. It took a, a lot to get the deal done. And, and Bradley certainly managed to bring everybody together and, and um, you know, and convince Chris that we were, we were serious and we weren't going to screw this up. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then, Those guys, they, they never met in person, did they? No, but they talked on the phone. And, and, uh, and Chris said to Bradley, he said, well, I'm going to have to drag you behind my truck a little bit and uh, knock the pretty off yeah. of you. <laughs> <laughs> Bradley's like, all right, all right, and do whatever you need to do. And you know, he said, he said, I'll, I'll let you put me through the paces and roll me around in the sand. And and Chris mm-hmm. took that and then and then knocked it up a notch to drag you behind my truck. Right. Well, uh, Bradley seemed to be able to pull it off <clears throat> without that aspect of it because yeah. it's it's like uncanny when you watch videos yeah. of Chris and then you watch the movie. I mean, he nails yeah. it. Yeah, it's a so. it's a it's a spiritual transformation. Yeah. It's, I would imagine too. There was an expectation that Bradley, you know, eventually would have met Chris on set, and that was yeah. We know, thought gonna we were going to make right? the, Chris so. was going to be the technical advisor for mm-hmm. the movie. You know, we thought we were going to make the movie with Chris. Right. So it wasn't there wasn't a big hurry. He was home. He was safe. Mm-hmm. Guy had lived through four tours of duty. He wasn't you know. Right. This he wasn't movie going was, anywhere. Yeah. This movie doesn't have to happen right now. <clears throat> but um. So we sold it, got the deal done, and then started working on it. And I'd call Chris every day and bug him and, you know, tell me about this, tell me about that, tell me all these stories. And, you know, I got the story of the enemy mm-hmm. sniper from him that was like one line in his book. And he was like, oh, I don't want to glorify that, you know, piece of shit. I mean, how real, how, how rooted in reality was that? Like, was the guy called Mustafa? Was he a Syrian? Was it, I mean, is that... I think that Chris changed the name when he told me the guy's name, but then I've since heard from someone in the State Department that his name was Mustafa. Mm. So I'm not I'm not positive what his name was, but they were all aware of of him as a as a you know possible Olympian sniper out there. And so the difference between a movie and reality is when you're looking through the scope of a gun and it's beyond 500 yards. How would you know? What, how would yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. You don't know. But the idea that this guy is out there, who's an enemy sniper, who's, who's, you know, was in the Olympics, anything outside of a certain distance became this guy. Mm-hmm. Anything outside of 800 yards He's in Chris's guy. mind becomes like, this has to be Mustafa. This has to be that guy. And so it was... It was a little bit of, you know, it's a little bit of fiction because it's a movie and you see that it's that guy. For Chris, it was more psychological in that he imagined it to be this guy and perhaps it was, perhaps it wasn't. You mm-hmm. never know, you know, at any given point if it is. And, you know, Chris believed he killed him and then a year later heard that the guy was still alive. Right. So that was a story I got from Chris. Um, <clears throat> one of many. He also told me there was a midget sniper too. Right. <laughs> Yeah, which you didn't want to put that in the movie. I try. I tried to put it in the movie, but it just seemed ridiculous. It seemed like you just made this up and like, 
you know, because he was so easily identifiable because of his height, uh-huh. they would smuggle him in in a suitcase. Are you serious? Yeah. And apparently this guy was good. Everybody knew about the midget sniper. Really? Yeah. You ask any of these... Uh, <laughs> what was that guy's uh, name? You ask any of the... I don't know what that guy's name was, but you ask any of the guys who yeah. were in Fallujah and Ramadi, they heard of the, the midget really? sniper. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Were there, are there like old drafts of the script laying around where that With guy... With the midget sniper? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> what is it? Like, watch out. They're going to smuggle him in in some luggage. Something like oh that. my god! Be on the lookout for some luggage. The, co- the comedy version of right, right. Sniper. Well, no, in the in the beginning too, that guy, uh, the guy that's you know on the rooftop with him, that's his spotter that he eventually mm-hmm. like has it out with, and is like, if you don't go down the street, right. I don't want to see you again. They called him Goat because in the beginning, and it came out of his book. They went into, they were clearing the rooms, then went into a bathroom, and this goat jumped out of the bathroom. <laughs> And like jumped off a jumped off a four story railing and like committed suicide. This this goat and, and the guy got the the guy who was clearing the the rooms got so nervous that he like fired his gun off and like screamed at him. <laughs> called him goat so after that. Yeah, he's forever goat after yeah. something like that. Yeah. Wow, interesting. That didn't make it into the movie for for obvious reasons. Right, <clears throat> right, right. Yeah, so there is a whole like comedy version you could cut. Yeah, you know. Yeah, cut that in there. Um, all right. Well, when does, uh, I mean, originally David O. Russell gets involved, right? I never even heard that. You didn't even know that? No. I just, that's on the Wikipedia. Yeah. I think that's, that's I think accurate. David O. Russell after, uh, after Stephen dropped out, I think Bradley reached out to David, but I think David, oh, cause it made it sound like that was, was before Stephen on the Wikipedia. So, but Stephen was really the, when Steven Spielberg gets involved, then this, was, like, this yeah. thing suddenly becomes very real. Yeah. 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 It got very real. I mean, what was that phone call like? Um, <clears throat> that was a crazy day because it was it was basically it was a series of phone calls. It was, the first phone call was from my agent. He's like, "You're not going to believe this, but Spielberg's reading your script, mm-hmm. Sniper." I was like, "Wow!" And I was like, "What a great day! That's great." I had no expectation of anything else happening, and um, I was like, "Wow, man, what a cool day! Thanks for that." And you know, he's never going to read it. Mm-hmm. And then later on in the day, yeah. I I bought a truck. I don't know if you had seen my. I bought a Toyota Land Cruiser from Japan that was a right-drive truck. Uh-huh. So the steering wheel's on the right side. And, and I was taking it out to get fixed. And, you know, all the electrical is different. And so I can't, can't right. plug anything in. And I'm taking it out to the Land Cruiser place in the valley. And my phone's dying on the way. And I can't plug it into this freaking car because the, the outlets are the wrong voltage. And, uh-huh. and I get another call. It's like, Steven Spielberg's door is closed. I was like, what door? And they're like, the door of his office. He's reading the script. Oh, so you're getting like real-time I'm updates. I'm getting real-time <laughs> updates. And then it's like, as I get uh-huh. further out into the valley, it's like, I'm, I'm getting there to my, to my guy's place. On my phone, it's like at 12%, 10%, 9%. And it's like, get another call. Steven's agent just walked into Bradley's agent's office. I'm standing in the hallway outside. The door's closed. Oh, and my I'm like, God. oh, my God. This is crazy. Really? 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 Right. And so I get but It's kind of like teenage girls talking. Yeah. Though. Yeah. <laughs> my agent's like hiding in the hallway. He's like, I'm standing in the hallway right now. Shh. shh. Yeah, you sit there. I hear him talking. Shh. shh. Uh-huh. That's hilarious. And uh, I get to my, I get to the Land Cruiser place, and I've had like six Land Cruisers, so I 
I, the last time I saw this guy was a while ago, but he remembers me like, hey, oh my God. And he jumps into this story about his daughter. Mm-hmm. And it's like this story about his daughter that he picked up from like six years earlier. He just picked it up like, oh, my daughter's doing great now, man. Like, and I don't uh-huh. totally remember. I remember the guy, but I don't totally remember the story about the daughter. But he's telling me and he's, you know, he's really happy. His daughter's doing mm-hmm. well. And I'm listening to the story, but my phone is ringing in my pocket. And I'm like, I know it's, I know it's my agent and right. I know something else has happened. And I know my fucking phone is dying and I just want to like, I just want to answer the phone, but I don't want to be rude. Right. And this guy's telling me something that means something about his daughter, about his daughter. So I just like, I'm sitting there listening and, and I'm in the middle, like I'm in the industrial part of the deepest part of Chatsworth. I know, I know that Land Rover place. I used to take my truck there. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And so it's surrounded by like industrial buildings Mm -hmm. and it's out in the middle of nowhere and. By the and train so, station, kind of. Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. I think so. And uh, I, I'm like, I start. I'm like, wow, that's cool. And I'm kind of trying to back away a little bit. And I'm like, trying to get out of the conversation so I can answer my phone because it keeps ringing and then over and oh. over and over and over. And uh, and I'm backing out. And he's like, dude, don't you need a ride? And I'm dropping off my truck, and I have no oh. ride. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm good. I'm good. Like the last thing I want is someone else. Ever, I want to answer my phone. Right. And uh, so I back out of this place, and he's like, "All right, see ya." Like, where the fuck are you going, dude? <laughs> and uh, and I pick up my phone, and I'm like, "Hey!" And he's like, "Dude, you're not gonna believe it. Steven Spielberg's doing your movie. He's doing your movie." I was like, wow. "Oh my god!" And I just get goosebumps, and I'm like, "So wait, tell me." And my phone dies. Oh, <laughs> just like right before I can ask any questions. <laughs> Or anything else, my phone dies. And I'm like, oh, my God. At least you got that part. At least like, what if it was like, part. you're never going to believe this click. <clears throat> right, you know? right. Like, At least I got that part. Yeah. So I got to live with it, and I had to walk like a mile and a half to Starbucks. Uh-huh. And then I get there, and I don't have a phone charger. And I'm like, oh, shit, I don't even have a charger. And I'm like, I just want to call my wife and tell her, like, you're not going right. to believe it. Or call my agent back and like just like have a moment. And I'm like... I can't find a phone charger and I'm asking everybody in the place and nobody has a phone charger. And I'm like, Oh my God. And so I, you know, I'm like, I just sit down. I'm like, well, I guess I'm just supposed to sit with this. And, uh, I just want to tell somebody so bad. And I'm sitting there and this guy across from me is dressed up and like, he's got a rolling suitcase, but he's dressed kind of nice, but you can tell he's been living, you know, a hard knock on uh-huh. the streets a little bit and place to place. And, and he's on the phone and he's talking to someone. He's like, no, 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 no. Tell him I don't need the money anymore. I don't need your money. I don't need your money. They're making my movie. And he starts screaming. They're making my fucking movie. No the guy's way. screaming. The whole place is like, what is he talking about? Oh my God. And I'm like, you know, this guy's totally batshit crazy. Right. But I'm like, and I would sound exactly like him if uh-huh. I had if I had juice in my phone right yeah, now. You're like they're making my movie uh, too. So I would be that guy. I was uh-huh. like, oh my god, I'm so glad I'm not that guy. And I had, a, you, you know, I just got that. to, yeah, I got to, I was saved from that, and I got to sit there with it for a moment. And that's crazy. Yeah. I mean, I think that that you know, for people that are listening, like, I mean, that obviously that's not how you know he didn't end up making your movie, but but that doesn't happen that way you know what i mean right. like the idea that like somebody like him would read the script and then instantaneously decide yeah, that, that 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 was going to be the movie that that he was going to make i mean yeah. that's not how it goes down no i mean i i don't i don't have the experience of how it goes down otherwise but i can tell you that it changes everything you know mm-hmm. his attachment changed the course of this movie and and without him having done that barring clint it it you know, it probably wouldn't have gotten made. I don't right. think the studio had any intention of making this movie. Right, because making war movies are not 
necessarily no. profitable. No, they're yeah, it's sort especially of especially like, an Iraq war movie. They're yeah, they're they're hot potatoes, right? Yeah. I mean, you have the hurt. You have movies like the Hurt Locker, but they're the exception. So when but the studios the Hurt Locker, like, Hurt Locker right. didn't make money. Mm-hmm. I mean, Hurt Locker made some money because of how small the budget was, but it this was a bigger budget right, movie, right, and it right. <clears throat> it wasn't um, wasn't something they wanted to do. But when Stephen put his name on it, it kicks into high gear. Mm-hmm. You know, and then obviously he came off it a couple months later. We'd worked on the script quite a bit. And, what were the changes that he wanted? Like, what did he want to see? that wasn't in the draft that you had at the time? Um, you know, a lot of specificity, a lot of clarity, a lot of, of getting the details right, a lot of investigation into these characters. He, um, you know, the this draft ballooned up about 30-some-odd 30, 30 pages. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you know, there was war, more war in it. There was, there was more details of the war that were... That were explicit and, and drew out sort of the narrative of the war in a in a in a bigger way. Um, so less, it would have been less through the eyes of Chris and a more expansive. It would have been less about uh, the archetype of the warrior and a more kind of like global. Well, there was more. There was more of the point of view of of the Iraqis. You mm-hmm. know, there was more. Right. Um, there was more. The butcher narrative went further. The uh, Mustafa. Because you don't really know. You don't know anything about these guys. No, right, really. No, and you know there was a tribal leader that was introduced that managed to capture the butcher, and mm-hmm. and they, you know, the true story is they captured that guy, the butcher, and they dumped him at the gates of the forward operating base, mm-hmm. and they were like, "Here's your butcher. We can take care of ourselves now." And so, in a way, they kind of took back the power, and and it was, it was sort of this release from the war for for us. And it happened at the very moment that Chris was driving back out to to try mm-hmm. and find the sniper mm-hmm. and to get getting caught in the sandstorm. So it added this futility to it that um, that was interesting, you know. And it was interesting for me to see them take back the power in a way. Right. But that's more of like an in Zarqawi. Over- we've we we mm-hmm. in the loop of Zarqawi and the and the drone strike that eventually happened on his compound and mm-hmm. and you know all of this happening sort of in the background for Chris. Right, that's like white noise to him, yeah. though, right? So, right? so in other words, what you're saying is that if Sp- the Spielberg's idea was a more overtly political movie. Mm, I think it was... Uh, I don't know if it was more overtly political. I think that it just... It, it put more effort into understanding the war in a way that was... Opened up the POV a little bit. So, mm. yeah, maybe it was less... Less xenophobic in a way, and, right. and sort of. What about tonally? Um, Clint has a very specific tone. No, I mean, look, the the draft didn't change that much. Mm-hmm. From you know, it, it became smaller, but the tone of of what was said on the page didn't change. Um, <clears throat> I think certainly Spielberg shoots action differently, right? You know, and he, it would have been a more. There would have been a lot more um, detail in that regard to, like, you know, the gun and how the gun works mm-hmm. and, and some of that. What I love about what Clint did is it's, it feels authentic to Iraq. It feels authentic to the war that these guys fought. He stands off it a little bit. He, uh, he lets it happen. He doesn't, he, it doesn't feel like a movie, right. you know. And I think that's the danger of this and, and the danger that, you know, people have stepped into before that the veterans kind of, you know, blow it off as something other than their experience because Mm -hmm. 
it's all uh, so fascinating. Mm-hmm. You know, the fascination with war and the and the gears of it becomes becomes more important than the message of of the movie and the story you're telling. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation, a groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most, mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. Yeah, that's a tricky balance because on the one hand, you have your war movies, you have your Saving Private Ryans and all of that, and then you have your coming home movies. You know, you have your, you, you know, the sort of post-traumatic stress, right. you know, guys coming back. But, but to have a movie that's doing both of those things and how do you strike the right balance right. in terms of how you're tipping the, you know, how much, air, how much screen time are you giving each of these and how do you kind of make sure that you're striking the right right emotional cord with each yeah. of those. And that's what Clint and his editors found, I think, is they mm-hmm. found the right balance of how much, you know, to keep it equal. Because you put too much more war in there and it feels like absolutely just numbing. Right. You know, you, you become numb to the experience in a way that's um, antithetical to everything else that's happening to, mm-hmm. to the character. Mm-hmm. Then you get the call that Spielberg's out. Yeah, a bad day. That was not a good day, right? No, not a good day. <laughs> that was on vacation too. Yeah, was I always your get phone running. Were you back at? Were you back at? Yeah, were you back at the oh, no, Land Rover? Full, full power that day. <laughs> yeah. Full power on Plenty the day that the, the Spielberg drops out of the movie, and you're uh-huh. just like, no, and you're like, you know, digging your heels in and scratching and clawing and like going way above, you know, beyond your depth of. Of, of the people that you should be calling and making promises to and, you know, just yeah. like crazy. And, and I mean, do you think, 
Like, is there some sort of promise, like, don't worry, we're going to get this with somebody else? Or is it like, yeah, no. this, this might be it, you know? No, you kind of felt like that might be it. Because mm-hmm. who are you going to get that matches Spielberg? Right. And the way Hollywood works is once there's kind of a taint on something, then it's yeah. kind of over with. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Except for between those two guys. Mm-hmm. Between Steven and Clint, Steven's developed a few movies that Clint, he drops out of that Clint comes on to. Mm-hmm. You know, Bridges of Madison County being another mm-hmm. one. And uh, there was one more. I can't remember what it was. Oh, it was uh, it was uh, Flags of Our Fathers. Mm-hmm. So those were both movies that Stephen <clears throat> was attached to at I one point. I Stephen was attached to that one. Yeah. Interesting. But it's, not, it's never like, don't worry, we're going to send this to Clint. No. Right. No, it wasn't that at all. And how much time passed between? Like six weeks. Oh, it wasn't six, that long. That's six, eight actually weeks. not that long, though. But you're thinking really depressing six weeks though. It's (laughs) it's seemed to last forever. Yeah. I mean, are you you know what's a day in the life like? Are you working on other projects? Are you keeping busy with you know? Do you have other scripts that? Yeah. You know. No, I I had another script with Steven at the time, and he Mm -hmm. handed me a book. You know, and it was it was uh, thank you for your service. It's a PTSD story of these guys coming home. So you would lock that in. I locked that in, and I was uh I was already working on it with him. so it wasn't like I missed him. I was like, mm-hmm. all right, I got another, I got another uh, at bat with him here. Right. So it's not like, oh, this is my, you know, the death knell of my career. Right. This was my one shot. That's no, I got another shot with him. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, all right. So six to eight really slow weeks. And then Bradley calls. He's like, you're not gonna, you won't believe who's gonna do our movie. I was like, who? And you know, I had talked to David O. Russell at some party, and he mm-hmm. was like. Oh, hey, man, I read your script. Yeah, I can't do that shit. Some guy like on a rooftop shooting people. Like, right. no. And he was like, ah, <laughs> he's so wild. He's like, and he, he was like laughing. No, well, it, would be, it would be a weird choice anyway yeah. after Three Kings. Like it doesn't really right. seem to make sense. Right. So. And he's got a tone that's not, it's right. not this tone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and he's like, I was like, Bradley, just tell me. I was so depressed. Was, You're not going to believe who's doing it. I was like, just tell me. Because I was sure it wasn't going to be, I wasn't going to be that excited. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, Clint Eastwood. Like, What? Wow, really? You know, because we talked about it as a Western. So Clint mm-hmm. coming on was like, wow. It was, um, it's kind of too good to be true. Yeah, I mean, from the Western perspective, that's, you know. He's the guy. The better fit. Yeah. Unless you're going to get Sergio Leone, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, step on up. Some spaghetti, uh, it was, spaghetti, it was, spaghetti Western version. It was cool. It was really cool. And it was like, yeah, he said, uh, he's on. Don't worry about it. He'll call us in three months. You know, and he went off and made Jersey Boys and then called in three months. Hmm. And, uh, yeah, it was a real... And then in three months, it just, like, went from zero to 120 and in two and a half months, and they started shooting in March. Yeah, I mean, that's what you always hear about working with him, right? Like, yeah. it's just this well-oiled machine. There's no there's no fluff. There's no time wasted. And it just is a machine that moves forward at yeah. an incredibly quick pace. Yeah. Yeah, they were off lo- location scouting, like, immediately mm-hmm. and... Casting just rolled through, and it was like bing, 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 you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, they cast late, don't get me wrong. Bradley was the only one who had, you know, a real serious amount of time to train for this. Right. And uh, <clears throat> some of those other guys were like, got the call, and were like, hey, you got to be in Morocco tomorrow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you wow. know? Uh, so you shot, you shot here and in Morocco, right? Yeah. Like kind of all over L.A. and then Morocco. Yeah. Uh-huh. Were you were you on set the whole time? I was on set for all of it except for Morocco because I owed mm-hmm. Stephen a draft, and so 
on the I other was, project. Yeah, right. I was I was stuck. <laughs> I was grounded. Uh-huh. So for somebody who's listening, who, who's not familiar with kind of the world of Hollywood and screenwriting, I me, mean, what you know, what is your what is your kind of job when you're on set? I mean, are you are you performing like rewrites Hide. or are you just like, you know, like Hide staying out of the way? Yeah. Yeah. Don't let Clint see you. Uh-huh. Like, don't stay in his eye line. Don't be the guy caught. In Is his it really eye line. like that? Uh, no, I, you know, you don't know. At right. first, you like there wasn't a like I didn't get a like, he handwritten be, invitation to come to set, or is he like stay away from me? Uh, no, it's kind of like you have to earn your way and mm-hmm. and your you gotta your put him place. in a headlock and don't wear a Converse, <laughs> right? You got to earn your place on set by like what you're doing, or if you're going to stand around and get in the way and just eat treats off the craft service right. table, or if you're going to do something and be helpful, or if you're going to you know who you're going to be, and so you kind of have to earn your stripes. Because nobody wants anybody else there. Because the more people that are there, the bigger clusterfuck it becomes mm-hmm. uh, if you're not doing something. But fortunately for me, I knew Chris. I, I knew Taya really well. I knew all these people. I, I knew the script like nobody else did. Well, the other thing also that I think people might be not appreciating completely is that you know Bradley Cooper wasn't just some actor that got cast like right. he came on as a producer and he's yeah. been, he's been your collaborative partner on yeah. this all along yeah, so there's a relationship a there yeah. right yeah and he trusted me and he trusted that I knew Chris and and he trusted my opinion on if he was if he was you know if he would had become Chris Kyle or not mm-hmm. and if he was Chris in every moment and he you know he was also obsessed with like am I big enough do I look big enough right you know, and, I'm, and so it was a eating, lot of like eating his face <clears throat> off. Eating his face off. He gained like thirty eight pounds, mm. and uh, you know he looked huge in a lot of shots, and he looked huge at certain angles, and he also looked like Chris at certain angles. And I was like, all right, here's the angle. Like mm-hmm. that's the angle over your shoulder this way, and and you know he he you stood behind the monitor, and like I'd get goosebumps because it was just he appeared as Chris, and it, and it was like this spiritual kind of transformation where you were just like, holy cow. Yeah. This guy became Chris without ever having met him. He used hundreds of hours of video and watched his stuff over and over, but it was, there was some kind of, he found a way to bring him back to life in a, mm-hmm. in a really bizarre way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the, the gift the of magic. a truly yeah. you know, talented actor, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you know, I've only seen that a few times. Right. And, and, like you channeling know, something. Right. Uh, maybe a handful of times, and three of them were Daniel Day Lewis. You know? mm-hmm. Right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and that's something you're, I mean, your, your pedigree is, an, that's how you started as an actor, right? Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, so we, we talk about the Buffy days if you want. <clears throat> yeah, I got recognized off of Buffy the other day. That oh, did you? Pleasure, yeah. <laughs> was it at the DGA screening? <laughs> where was it? I can't remember where it was. Starbucks. Oh, no, it was, at a, it was at the Santa Barbara Film Festival. This girl was like, were you Devin McLeish from Buffy? <laughs> I was like, yeah. She's like, oh my God, you were in that band with Seth. Dingo's <laughs> ate my baby. I was like, That's oh so man. Funny. I know it keeps getting brought up. You needed up. it for well for whatever reason. You needed to be reminded of that. I need it. Yeah, I need the I need the daily dose of humility. Was yeah. my Buffy days. No, it was a great show. I mean, it was a great show. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think Pacific that... Blue was was a bigger dose of humility. Luckily, nobody remembers oh, me from know, that. Yeah, I got my sad card know. on Pacific Blue. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, if we were like stole a hot dog or something yeah. from a hot dog stand on Venice Beach and went running. Right. Well, there's this idea. 
I don't know if there's really this idea, but, but, you know, perhaps this sense that, that, uh, you know, like who is this guy, Jason Hall, he just comes around and suddenly, you know, he's an Oscar nominated screenwriter. Right. He came out of left field, but I mean, you've been doing this for a long time. Dude. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I remember being at Sundance in 99, 2000. Like, right. I think I met you through like Eric Feig, maybe right. or John, yeah. John Gatons or yeah. somebody like that, like way back. Yeah. Right. Like you've been, pursuing this for a very yeah, long like time. like 96. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. And I was, I was acting at first and I produced a movie and then, mm-hmm. you know, stumbling around, finally started writing like 16 years ago. Right, 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 right. So, so, so you're a 16 year, like overnight. Sensation, yeah. <laughs> you know? And how many scripts like in the meantime? <clears throat> Probably 20, 26, mm-hmm. 24. Yeah, a Something lot. like that, a lot. I mean, if you could go back and... At first, they took longer. You know what I mean? The first one yeah, took a year. of course. second one took nine months. third one took six. But you need to take your time to get the first one right. Because mm-hmm. the first one's your calling card. And if you, if you think, oh, I got all these great ideas. I'm going to write this one, and then I'm going to write that one. I'm going to write that. You're going to get three like mediocre scripts. If you take time and write one that's personal to you and take a year to do it, you get a, one great script, hopefully. Mm-hmm. And then doors open. Yeah. Opportunities, even if the story is batshit crazy and nobody wants to tell it, if you write it well, they can see that the writing is great. What was your first script? Uh, it was called The Iceman. It was about a story about a kid who goes to prep school as a child prodigy piano player who hates playing piano and Mm -hmm. you know has this sort of strangely like whiplash. He has a teacher like like the guy in Whiplash, Uh and uh. You know, the kid hates playing piano, meets a hockey player who loves playing hockey and is an older guy and kid teaches them to like, you know, they smoke pot and they they get busted and, and the older kid gets kicked out and commits suicide skating onto the thin ice on the river. Wow. And uh, the piano player decides he wants to play hockey. Mm. They're like, no, you came here to play piano. And he's like, you know, he's this crazy kid and he ends up cutting off one of his fingers. Oh, wow. It's like, I'm not playing piano. <laughs> They're like, all right, <laughs> you can play hockey, and he's uh-huh. terrible. And you know, then the dead kid comes to him in the middle of the night and takes him out onto a pond in the in the middle of the woods and teaches him to play hockey. Oh wow, yeah, that's, like, sort of, that's cool. Yeah, it's trippy. Do you? I mean, has this experience compelled you to like pull any old scripts out of the drawer? Absolutely not. Yeah. Are dead letters. It, it sounds cool, but yeah. yeah, I'm sure if I went back and read it, I'd be like, whoa. I mean, if you can go back and, and 15 years, 16 years to when you were first starting, I mean, what kind of advice would you give yourself knowing, knowing what you know now? <clears throat> That's a good question. You know, I was really resistant. I wrote scripts for myself for a long time. I wrote three or four scripts mm-hmm. that I wanted to act in. And, uh, and the blind wrestler script. Yeah, the blind wrestler script. And I basically, any time they said, "What if so and so wants to be in this?" I'd say, "So and so can fuck off." Right, because you were you were gonna do a Sylvester Stallone. Yeah, I was pulling my Matt Damon. Mm-hmm. And uh, and yeah, Matt Damon was a better actor than I was. That's a problem. <laughs> we don't know, Jason. We don't know. How many we'll episodes of Pacific Blue? Just one. <laughs> Just one. Yeah. So, I mean, do you think, so that, what you're saying is that you think that held you back? Like, uh, yeah, kind of I stubborn think, about you know, that? Ride, the, ride the horse in the direction it's yeah. going. Like, there's a lot of ways to succeed, and, and you don't always know 
what's going to make you happiest, what's the most fulfilling if you can't get past your ego and, and your own idea of, you know, what you're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. You know, we all kind of are on that road to discovering who we're supposed to be and, and who we're meant to be. And uh, I think sometimes our ideas of that get in the way of, of actually achieving that. Yeah, I think that's that's very well said. So, so in other words, yeah, I mean, that's my, you know, that's been my path. I was just you know, telling you a sure. story. <laughs> so, when you finally got to that point where you were willing to kind of let go of this idea of being yeah. the actor, yeah, how long ago was that? Uh, years ago, mm-hmm. that was uh, uh, maybe nine years ago, eight years ago. Mm-hmm. And then I went back and someone called me up and was like, "Hey, did you quit?" And I was like, "No, I'm writing." And she's like, "Well, come down and audition." I'm doing this show. I was like, ugh. And I went down on audition and I got the role and I'm like sitting on the set of CSI Miami. I was like, wow, I never want to do this again. Really? Yeah. So if you had an opportunity now that arose, you would just not interested? I don't know. Probably not. Mm-hmm. Not, if it, not unless it was really cool and working with an interesting director on something that was artistic and wasn't, wasn't you know, <laughs> silly procedural <clears throat> TV. Mm-hmm. You know, it's boring. Yeah. Those guys are bored out of their minds. Sitting at the same table interrogating a different person with the same storyline every week. It's like, that's not, that's not artistic. When you're doing something like Bradley's getting to do, that's, that's absolutely thrilling. When you're getting to explore a character and, and you know, he's working every day. He's on mm-hmm. scene. He's got, he's got new stuff every day that's, you know, advancing the, the film. When but being like a uh, TV show, it's yeah, not, but like being Chris Maloney on Law and Order for however many years or whatever. Look, he did. Um, he did fine, and and that's that's great. You know, I'm sure that they get bored of it, but that's you know, those are the golden handcuffs, right? I mean, that's yeah, it's like that's a good gig. It's a great right? gig if, as, a, as yeah. gigs go. Yeah, Mariska Hargitay has done all right. Yeah, I would think so. Right? How yeah. many years has that show been? I mean, like oh thirteen God. or something. <laughs> 13, you yeah, make an obscene amount of money. Yeah, it's crazy. But, but, you know, it's also like, is it artistically fulfilling at that point? Probably mm-hmm. not. Mm-hmm. You talk to people that are on those shows and they're just, a lot of times they're miserable. Right. You know? They're hammering huge checks, though. Right. So. And you're like, oh, poor you. But the reality is, as artists, we have to find something that keeps us alive and keeps us fresh and keeps us hungry or... Mm-hmm. or you know, or you die inside a little bit. Mm-hmm. So the advice that you're giving your younger self is, is let, get the, let the ego get out of the way. Yeah, let the ego get out of the way and, and, and you know, follow, it, follow what you believe in and, and don't try and write stuff for other people. Mm-hmm. You know, do it for yourself. Mm-hmm. And when, you were, when you're on set with Clint and you're making this movie, I mean, did you have the sense that this was something special, that this could break out the way that it has? Or has this been like a crazy, just sort of unpredictable ride? No, you know, it was the first I've had a couple of movies made and I've been on set and watched everything. Like you walk away from a scene being shot and you're like, wow, that wasn't what I wanted at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and this film, it would turn around, it would like, You'd feel like, oh, I don't know, I don't know, and then the camera would turn around onto Bradley, and the lens would go closer, and you get a, you know, a close-up shot on him, and you'd be like, boom, that's it. Right. It's exactly what I thought this was supposed to be. That was my question. Was you know, looking at the film now, I mean, is this the movie that you had in your mind? Does it track with what you imagined? Yeah, it does. Yeah, that's got to be super gratifying, and I'm sure that's not the typical experience of the screenwriter. Yeah, no, I don't think it is. It's. Um, you know, every other experience I've had getting a movie made was like, 
yeah, I, I need to direct or I'm going to lose my mind. Mm-hmm. And this was, this was different because you felt the, the intent of the scenes of what you were trying to say was accomplished. It's not always accomplished in the way that I imagined it, but it was accomplished in, in through Clint's style and, and his integrity and his instincts. And, and he has a real nose for the truth and how to get to it. Mm-hmm. And I think that, 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 uh, I mean, from what I've read that the SEAL team guys and Chris's, widow like everybody feels like the movie really honors his memory pretty well right that's got to feel good yeah especially after getting you know getting in some scruffs and more headlocks and being told that you better get it right or you're in big trouble (laughs) (laughs) and having them like know that that not only that they can but they probably will yeah (laughs) i mean you know they never would but but when a guy says that and he looks at you and he's like i just that's how much he means to me, and I don't have that much to lose. Right. Like, wow, that's dark. Right. Well, if you weren't putting enough pressure on yourself already. Right. You know? Right. But you know what? Pressure's good. I like pressure. It helps me mm. work harder, and, and you know, you, there was, a like I said, at the beginning, this felt like a burden, and then it became a privilege. Like, that burden of, of doing this right became the privilege of, of getting it right. Mm-hmm. And I think you did, right? I hope so. The, the head hits the pillow feeling like you feels good. You know, we, I wrote this in a big way for, for that wife and those kids. Right. And when she came out of the movie, she said, um, speaking of Bradley, she said, he, he brought my husband back to life. I just spent two hours with my husband. You guys brought my husband back to life. Mm-hmm. You're like, mission accomplished. That's, you know, that was it for me. That happened before the film release. That happened before anything, and that's still a high watermark. So, when somebody goes into their local movie theater to see this movie for the first time, like, what is your hope that they walk away with? Hope they walk away with the experience of of what these guys sacrifice when they go to war for us, and what their families go through, and what they sacrifice as well, and an understanding of who these soldiers are, and and with that understanding, a, a you know, the expansion of the ideas of how we can welcome them home. Mm-hmm. You know what we can do for them, and how we can how we can offer them a, a helping hand. Because you know, there's no reason that this generation of three million guys coming home from war can't be our next great generation. You know, they've mm-hmm. come home with certain skills and tools and and an experience that will that broadens the way they look at the world and at life. And and you know, they've seen a lot of things that that most of us will never see. And and they have a high ceiling. You know, this has given them a high ceiling of aptitude and and. And some of them are bringing some stuff home that needs to be corrected, and, and they need help in doing that. But these guys need an opportunity above everything else, and they need a, a fair shot. Mm-hmm. That's beautifully put. I think that's a pretty good place to lock it down. All right. Thanks so much for doing this, man. Yeah, my pleasure. So tell me what's uh, going on with your other projects. Uh, <clears throat> thank you for your service. i got to do another little touch-up for Steven. i got a movie called uh, about Rasputin, mm-hmm. called Rasputin. Strangely enough, yeah. Uh, and What's that's the for uh, who's doing that? That's for Leonardo DiCaprio and Warner Brothers. Mm-hmm. And I got to do another little tweak on that, but we're pretty happy with that one as well. And then, uh, and then uh, American uh, drug, drug Lord. Lord, yeah, with Charlie Hunnam. Yeah, is that at Warner Brothers also? No, that's at uh, Legendary. Mm. That's, and what's uh, the status of that? That's pretty new, right? That's new. That's um, that's about uh, the only American-born citizen to ever become the head of a Mexican drug cartel. That's an insane story. Yeah. Have you read about it? 
A little bit. I only know yeah. a little bit, but it's yeah. pretty crazy. We dipped down into Mexico a few weeks ago. That was pretty crazy. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. Oh, I thought you were just on vacation. No. No. <laughs> All right. Well, we can talk about that later. Yeah. That's the next podcast. <laughs> got some crazy pictures. Yeah. All right. Cool. Um, so you got, a, you got a full plate, man. Some amazing yeah. things going on. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So, uh, and the siren goes off. Perfect. Just in time, right? Well, it's inspiring, man. I know how hard you've worked and for however many years, and uh, it's nice to see one of the good guys succeeding, and I'm really happy for you, and this is a really exciting time, man. I hope you're embracing, enjoying all of it. Yeah. Thanks, Rich. So, thank you. Uh, if you want to dig on Jason, you're not really like a big social media guy, are you? I you're got, on some, Instagram. I got some Twitter and Instagram. <laughs> all right. You got weird numbers after your name, though, right? It's not that weird, man. <laughs> Jason 86. No, Jason Hall. Jason 8675. Hall. What, is that, what does that Wait, mean? You can't, fit, you can't finish the rest 86. of that? 8675309. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's really that cheesy? It's really that cheesy. It was a prefix for uh, 867 was Running Springs, which is right uh-huh. where I grew up. So we're always like wondering, who's the girl that this guy put it to like right. who's he dating uh-huh. who's this guy dating that we know that lives in running springs because it's your yeah your local i was wondering camp. yeah if mm-hmm. it was like brandy or julie you never got answered never got answered all right so still looking for the answer out there if anybody has it there you go so that's the way to find jason on twitter and on instagram jason and uh, eight six seven five there you go go to the movie theater see uh american sniper and that's about it right man reach out all right thanks, thanks. brother peace Plants. All right. I hope you guys enjoyed that. I hope you got something out of it. I hope you were entertained by Jason. If you haven't checked it out yet, please do go to richroll.com. It's your home for the podcast and all your plant power provisions, plus some great information about our new book, Plant Power Way. If you're interested in my online courses, The Art of Living with Purpose, that's about goal setting. That's about connecting with your inner creative being, uh, and also our other course, The Ultimate Guide to Plant-Based Nutrition. Both of those are available at mindbodygreen.com. Easy to find on the homepage there. Hit us up with a review on iTunes if you're enjoying the podcast. Send me your questions for future Q&A podcasts. Credit for the production, audio engineering, music, sound design on today's show goes to Tyler Pyatt. Thanks, Tyler. With additional production and editorial support by Chris Swan. Graphic art, as always, done by Sean Patterson. Thanks, you guys. We'll see you next week. Peace. Plants. I'm out of here.